coming up on Stu Does America. Longtime viewers of mine might know that I spent a large portion of my childhood loading up on bruises and abrasions at New Jersey's insane Action Park. Uh, well, author and journalist Seth Porges is here to tell us about all the new uh, stuff he's got going on in this great new documentary. Uh, it's about that park, and you just need to brace yourselves for the bloodshed. It's going to be great. And libertarian superhero Andrew Heaton. Yes, he's back, debuting on the program. I'm really excited to have him on. He'll tell us about why his campaign to be vice president of the Whig Party is the real hot political gossip right now. You're not going to want to miss that. Our path to YouTube supremacy just keeps getting derailed by the conservative hate algorithm robots oh my gosh help us fight back by subscribing to the channel sharing with your friends and liking all of our videos even this one right now before you forget or I say something that pisses you off and thank you to all of our podcast listeners who can't stand to see my face you'll be extra glad with your choice when you see tonight's topic keep rating us five stars and sending out your reviews we like to read them at the end of the program raise your hand if you don't have a blaze TV account uh, yeah there's a couple of you out there now take that hand gently slap yourself I mean, or you can do it hard. It doesn't either way. I don't judge. But now is the time to sign up. Head to blazetv.com slash stew. Use the promo code stew because that's how they know you like this stupid show. And you'll save 10 bucks. It's Friday. We're having fun. And I'm pretty sure none of us are currently getting any. So let's do quarantine sex. Stew does America. I should point out that when I said let's do quarantine sex, that was not a proposition. Or was it? The concept of baby boomers is kind of weird when you think about it, isn't it? Think about uh, being a baby boomer for a second. You're in a generation that's named after the idea that your parents had sex a lot. Now, people are so uncomfortable talking about it that they just call them boomers. Give it up on the whole thing. But it makes sense. The men were overseas at war, kicking Adolf's ass, and then they came home, and everyone pretty much agreed they deserved some action. I mean, they, they saved the world. Pretty much everybody wanted to hook up with them. That was the thing. The question is, are we now on the verge of another baby boom from the quarantine? Theory is that everyone was stuck inside together for a couple of months with nothing to do. Therefore, they're having lots of quarantine sex. And in nine months, we're going to have COVID kids everywhere. But here's the thing. There are a lot of problems with this theory. First of all, the economy sucks. People don't want to have babies when they have no idea whether we're going to have the economy of Rwanda for the next 20 years. When tens of millions of people are losing their jobs, adding a new mouth to feed is, you know, it seems a little, a bit suboptimal. Let's call it that. And the stats show that this is true. Birth rates fall during recessions and depressions. Back in the day of the original baby boom, we were coming off of a World War II situation where we're celebrating that victory. The economy is soaring. Young couples were buying houses and then filling them up. Today, we don't get married until we're in our 30s, and we're just selfish enough to find kids annoying. Second, people are a bit stressed out. You may have noticed this when you saw your local AutoZone go up in flames. A little candlelight can be romantic, but watching your corner Wendy's burn to the ground can be a bit much. Stress isn't conducive with baby making. Third, the pandemic is a buzzkill. Coronavirus has definitely created some problems for a baby boom. It's a bit hard to hook up when you're wearing a mask and staying six feet away from everybody. 
Plus, people aren't exactly looking for reasons to go to the hospital in the middle of COVID. This has happened in the past as well. In the pandemic of 1918, birth rates dropped by 10%. That may have also partially been because the fashion of 1918, look, it just was not hot. There was no sexiness involved at all. Look at that. Look at these outfits. Fourth, birth control. About two-thirds of women of childbearing age use birth control already. Those who don't and might want to add it on to their lives had to deal with shuttered clinics and a ban on unnecessary doctor's visits. Back in the original baby boom after World War II, there was no such thing as the birth control pill. It wasn't approved until 1960, so nature sort of took its course. That's why you have so many great aunts and uncles, thousands of them. Number five, COVID killed Tinder. Yes, a lot of married couples stayed home together more often, but there's another side to that. The people who would normally be meeting up with random strangers and hooking up are now not going to bars and not meeting. And even a lot of couples who were already together were either not seeing each other at all or as much. Um, So that makes a lot of sense. Not everyone who has a kid lives with the person who made it with them. This is a new uh, philosophy here in the year 2020. And finally, we're all awful. I can understand why we might think a lot of time together would lead to more quarantine sex and then an eventual baby boom. It kind of makes sense. But in reality, there's a lot left out of that analysis. For example, the more time we spend together, the more time we have to realize how annoying our partners are. It's sort of a utopian thought that tons and tons of more time together with no distractions is going to make us more, you know, more affectionate with our spouses. It's just as likely for us to realize that we can't stand that weirdo we live with. Not to mention, the longer the quarantine lasts, the fatter we all get. And at least for guys, after... Is that that a picture of Jeffy? I mean, I will tell you, Jeffy, I did not plan that one. Uh, At least for guys, after months and months of lockdown, it's kind of impossible for us to hide how gross we are. It's just, we're only human males, and that's kind of it. All this combines... (laughs) Uh, For a lot of couples uh, to not only having, I don't know, not having more quarantine sex, but combining with money problems, they're actually leading to more divorces. And if your scale matches so many millions of others after the quarantine, you know that we're likely going to have a covid vaccine before we start looking halfway decent again. So at the end of the day, the idea that quarantine sex is going to lead to another baby boom is almost definitely a myth. But now you know the facts. And when the topic comes up, you can act smart because at this point she still has to be with you because of your brains, because I can guarantee she's not with you for your abs. You're a fan of this stupid show. You've probably heard me talk about action park, the world's most dangerous amusement park where I used to enjoy getting bruises and abrasions and all sorts of things as a kid. Maybe you knew about it too, or maybe you knew someone who had, you know, been hurt there in some terrible mangled way. Uh, it has an insane history. Uh, previously on this show, I spoke to Andy Mulvihill, the son of action park founder, Gene Mulvihill about the American spirit that the park represented. And there's just such great memories uh, going back and thinking about that era. Uh, today I am joined by Seth Porges. He's co-director of class action park, a brand new documentary available to stream exclusively on HBO max. Uh, Seth, you were on my show show a long time ago about this very park. I'm really thrilled to see you're still uh, following up and and building this story out, man, because it is an amazing place. 
It was an amazing place. You went there. I went there. I don't think anybody who went there isn't just obsessed with talking about it and, and sharing stories about it. There's something about it that just never, never lets go of you. Yeah, it's true. I mean, it's, it's, it's funny because uh, I went through years and years and years telling people as I moved around the country about this action park thing. And it, it almost seems like a myth, like this this place that couldn't have possibly existed. And I use it all the time to explain various eras of history. And to me, it really represents that time really, really well. Um, I'm so glad you put this together. It, by the way, it's a great documentary. You did a great job with it. Thank you very much. And I, I, I hope that in a couple of decades, we look back at the 80s as the action park era more yeah. than anything else. I think it really represents everything about this era, the good, the bad, the ugly, the bruised the bloody and the fun. Yeah, it's true. I mean, my, my biggest memory of being there was standing, not even being on one of the rides, which and there were many of them. They were really great. But standing there and looking at what is known as the cannonball loop, uh, it was not in uh, it was not functioning the day I was there. But it is a loop water slide, the most insane idea that anyone ever could have conceived and not built with a lot of engineering uh, know how. No, it, it looks like a Hot Wheels track. Like somebody's <laughs> just decided to make a loop and throw some kids down there. And what was amazing about the slide is, yes, even when it wasn't in operation and very often was not in operation because they never really got it to work right, as one might expect when they look at it, it was still at the gate of the park. So the first thing you see when you walk into like Disney World or Disneyland is a big castle. Mm-hmm. The first thing you see when you walk into Action Park is a giant looping water slide. And that tells you everything you need to know about what you are about to endure. The second you arrive at this park, you know, this place is different. This is not Disney World. Yeah, no, it's true. I mean, I remember that so so vividly standing there like aghast, like just looking at this thing. How could this possibly be standing here? We talked to uh, Andy Mulvihill, as I mentioned, the uh, son of Gene, and he said he was the first person to ever go down the cannonball loop. Um, I mean, it, the, there were several people who went down it. Most of them were paid to do so. Yes. So so when the riot first opened, you know, they just kind of threw this thing together. They didn't do any physical modeling or engineering blueprints. It was more of let's just kind of see what works here. So they build this thing. They start throwing some test dummies out. The test dummies come out dismembered, mangled, missing a head. Just it's not working. So they start tinkering with the design. They change the height. They change the water pressure. They realize that if they spray people with a hose to get them nice and wet, they have a better chance of making it all the way around. And I say chance because not everybody made it all the way around. They eventually had to install a hatch to extricate bodies from it. And then they decide, okay, I guess it's working well enough. Now we can start some, you know, throwing some kids down there. So Andy claims he was the first person to, going down, and he wore all this hockey gear because he didn't know what he was about to do. <laughs> so after that, Gene, the owner of the park, uh, needs some more you know, human guinea pigs. So he starts waving $100 bills in the air. And anybody with the guts to go down would get $100. And if you're a 15-year-old in the 1980s, that's a lot of – that's real money. Oh, yeah. So you're going to do that. And so these kids start going down. And the first couple kids went down. They came out with, like, bloody mouths and missing teeth. And nobody was really sure what was going on. It turned out there was insufficient padding in the slide. So they go in. They take a look around. They add more padding. And send some more kids down. These kids come down. Well, their teeth are okay, but they have lacerations all over their body. Nobody knows why. Well, they open up the slide again, and they realized the teeth from the first group had gotten stuck in the padding and was literally just 
eating into these kids as they're going through the looping water slide. It's like a horror movie. <laughs> I mean, they're getting cut by people's teeth on a water slide. It really does explain sort of the, the mentality of this place. And you do a really good job telling the story of, of Gene uh, Mulvihill because, he, you know, I, I read the book uh, that Andy wrote uh, recently, which is really good. Um, it's called Action Park. Um, and it, it, even in his book, his son there are times where I can't tell if he's going to come out on Gene's side. He really was a complicated figure. He was a complicated figure. And that's what makes this story so fascinating and so interesting is some people think he was a, a terrible villain and other people think he was this heroic visionary. And, you know, where you stand, I think, says more about you than about him. And he was somebody who I think kind of embodied the highs and lows of the human experience. He was a, a big, fun-loving, larger-life guy who wanted to get things done no matter what was in his way, whether that meant laws or rules or <laughs> common sense or physics, whatever it was, he wanted <laughs> to get it done. Um, but at the same time, a fair number of people did get hurt from the park. And what this movie, I think, is really about is how those things can kind of coexist, how we can look back at this era and we can say – Maybe we've lost something. Things are different today. Kids don't have it the same today. But at the same time, realize that these experiences we had, these fond memories, the sense of nostalgia we have, it has to coexist with the realization that we probably witnessed some pretty messed up stuff. You know, mm -hmm. like these two things can coexist. We can look back fondly in there and say we're missing something and also realize a lot of things about that time were really, really weird and, and kind of messed up. Yeah, you can, you can ignore a lot of laws. You can't ignore the laws of physics. That's, that's why no. those, those are tough to ignore. That catches up to you. <laughs> it really does. Um, you, yeah, it's, it's interesting. Um, you hit me with this really well at one point in, in the documentary where, because I really look back at it as positive, 100% uh, positive and in, my, in my head. And it probably does say a lot about me um, because I love that era. And I want to talk about that a little bit more. But... One of the one of the people in the documentary mentioned um, that they would never let their kids <laughs> go to Action Park. And as soon as they said that, I thought to myself, oh, God, no, I would never let my no. kids go to this place. It's insanity. <laughs> I really do remember it positively, but it really was it really was insane uh, and probably should not have been allowed. Yeah, it definitely should have been. And we found that a lot. That was one of the, the kind of our, our gateways into understanding the story was trying to understand how these same people who look back and say, this was the time of my life. This is where I had my first job, my first kiss, my first beer, my first party, my first looping water slide, whatever it might be, like the time of their life that made them into who they are. Next sentence, you ask them, so, you know, if Action Park was still around like it was back then, would you let your kid go? They'd say, heck no, <laughs> not in a billion years. And I think that's so, so interesting. And it's like it's kind of a head scratcher and kind of amazing. And I think it tells you so much about us, just like us as people, that we love these things. But we know, like deep in our heart of hearts man, they're wrong. They're just wrong. Yeah, yeah. It's, it, and it, it, it's, it really is an interesting thing to, it helps you examine how you feel because at the same time, you correctly point out in there that it really was the last era of letting your kids just go out and play on their own or, or, or walk to the park on their own. And I know, and I've, I've said this a hundred times, I realize statistically it is much safer for me to let my kid go to the park than my mom to let me go to the park when I was a kid. Like crime was way down. We're, we're in a objectively safer time. Um, but we've lost a lot of that. And that part of it, pro we probably have gone too far that way as well. 
Yeah, I mean, also the parks back in the day. Today, there's you know some nice sense of like rubber coating and design. Back then, there's rusty nails sticking out of everything, right. and you're lucky if you didn't step on a broken bottle. I mean, we had all probably had that, that kind of experience. Uh, but but really, things things have changed, and um, you know everybody is a little scared these days. And uh, I think that especially now where we're not just nostalgic for what Action Park was, we're not just nostalgic for this 1980s Goonies, uh, Stand By Me, Breakfast Club, like latchkey existence, all of these kids have. We're, we're now nostalgic for the very idea of going outside, yeah. of, of seeing people, of having friends. And I think this movie right now hits at such an interesting time because this, like what we miss we're so we're much further from that than we ever were even just six months ago yeah. right now. That's it's very true. Um, the movie takes sort of a dark turn, I would say, about two thirds of the way uh, through when you're talking about uh, the the family of one of the I mean, look, there were several deaths that happened at Action Park. If you know anything about the story, you do know that. Um, and you go with the family and, and talking about one of the families of one of the victims. That was really really powerful, and, and it kind of shakes you a little bit because you're having such a good time earlier in the movie. How did you connect with her, and 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 how did that come about? Yeah, I think I think that was very important for this movie. We couldn't just pretend like these things didn't exist. We wanted to acknowledge that Action Park was a place of immense fun, immense joy, immense laughter, formative experiences for folks like yourself. But at the same time, it was a place of heartache and tragedy for others and that those things did coexist. And uh, I think it was really important to make a movie that made people laugh and allowed them to have a good time and then made them question their laughter a little bit and maybe feel complicit in laughing at something that at the end they might feel a little guilty about laughing about. Maybe they shouldn't have. And to do this, we, we found the family, uh, the Larson family, whose son George was, was killed in 1980 on the Alpine slide. And we reached out to them. And we tracked them down, and they got back to us almost immediately and basically told us that in 39 years since the incident, nobody had ever bothered to ask them what happened. And mm. it was quite astonishing to me because when we spoke to them, we found that the true story of how it unfolded and sort of the aftermath and to some degree the cover-up of the death uh, had never been told and that the narrative, the, the mythology of Action Park uh, involving this story was to some degree not true. Yeah, you know, uh, that was that was pretty revealing. And uh, you it worked. You made me feel bad about about myself. And I, <laughs> I, I, I it was really it was, it's an interesting term because I love the, I love the park. But man, to see that this poor family and you, of course, think of, of your own family. And that was it was really a powerful story. And you told it really well. Um, it, there were those moments. But overall, there were thousands and thousands of people who went there seemingly every day and had a really great time. And that's certainly how I remember it overall. And I look back at it really as a, as a example of a, a, diff a different time, like a, a, a pre-litigation time, a, a time of personal responsibility where, you know, look, kids are one thing, but you could go up on a freaking cliff and be 20 feet above water with people all below you. And it was up to you to land in the right place and not kill yourself. And there's something charming about that. As you look back, we really have changed a lot as a country. And this really is a, is an, is an amazing moment in time. Yeah, I think nobody walks away from this movie thinking Action Park could exist today. Yeah. Nobody walks away from this movie thinking, oh, yeah, that, 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 that's obviously, that makes sense. Somebody should open that today. What a great idea. 
Um, and yeah, you know, I think there is something very interesting about this idea that when you have this level of control, it builds confidence. It, it turns you into somebody different. People who went to Action Park have fond memories of it because it pushed them to their limits. Uh, the problem, of course, comes into play not when you make the bad decision about when you're going to jump off the cliff, mm-hmm. but when the person below you has no idea you're going to jump on them. <laughs> right. that, that's when things get a little dicey. Yeah, no, that's definitely a fair <laughs> point. You know, it's funny going through this and going through the book as well. I, I wind up really liking Gene overall and 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 liking his attitude, even though he made tons of terrible mistakes. Um, and, you know, it, it was interesting to kind of go through that and, 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 and look at that story as a whole, as, a, as sort of an example of, of where our country has gone and, and, and you know, what it's become, in some good ways and some bad ways. You take us through that whole uh, story in the documentary, Seth Porges. The documentary is called Class Action Park. It's brand new, available to stream exclusively on HBO Max. Congratulations, man. It's, you did a great job with it, and, and uh, it was, I really enjoyed watching it. Well, that means a lot. I'm glad you liked it. Thank you. As, as a super fan of, of Action Park, you, yes. you did it justice. <laughs> Thanks so much. Uh, Seth Porges, we'll be back in a second. Tony Coburn's bragging about you. Hello, my name is Portia Bennett. Um, I'm just going to be honest, Mr. Biden. I was told to go off this paper, but I can't. Uh-oh. You need the truth. And I'm part of the truth. Sure. I was born here, raised here. First eighth grade class of the school that was named after his mother. So I have to give you the truth of the people. And the truth of the matter is we are heavily angry. Not angry as to where people say, oh, they're protesting. There are different, there's a difference mm-hmm. between a protester and a rioter. Mm, I agree. A very big difference. I agree with that. We protest to get our, our voices heard. We protest to show that not just blacks are tired of what's going on. As you can see, there are blacks, whites, Muslims, Chinese, Hispanic that are out there. We came together to help get this community together. Now, now, if you missed it at the beginning, she said, I was I know I'm supposed to go off this paper, uh, but, you know, I, I need to tell you the truth. She goes on to explain. Well, yeah, that's, I mean, there are a difference between uh, protesters and rioters. That's kind of what we've been pointing out here for a while. Uh, the the controversy here, of course, is the fact that maybe Biden's campaign is handing out questions to the people asking them. Now, it's possible this, will, of course, be their their uh, their defense here. Is a lot of times they will tell you, okay, what's your question? Write it down, read it exactly off the paper, because they don't want people going, um, you know, they don't want people just making stuff up when they go up there and saying some crazy conspiracy theory or saying something racist or God only knows. Uh, so sometimes you can ask a question and then they will write it down and say, read it exactly off that paper. Doesn't seem like what happened there, though. Uh, we'll see if this uh, develops into anything else. I was also uh, kind of uh, interested in this clip with uh, Bill Barr. He's uh, on with Wolf Blitzer, and this—you know—you don't see Barr's very under control. Doesn't normally get uh, this upset, but uh, he got pretty fired up with Wolf. There are individual uh, cases, but as far as widespread fraud, 
We haven't seen that since. Uh, well, we have. We haven't had the kind of widespread use of mail-in ballots as being proposed. We've had absentee ballots from people who request them from a specific address. Now, what we're talking about is mailing them to everyone on the voter list when everyone knows those voter lists are inaccurate. People who should get them don't get them, which is what has been one of the major complaints in states that have tried this True. In, in municipal elections. And uh, people who get them are not the right people. They're people who have replaced the, ocup- the previous occupant and they mm-hmm. can make them out. And sometimes multiple ballots come to the same address with a whole genera- several generations of occupants. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's a way to run a vote? Well, uh, the only thing I'm saying is that so far we haven't seen widespread fraud. But so far we haven't tried it. Well, and the point is that a lot of us, uh, there are several states that only have mail-in voting, including a Republican. Well, this is playing with fire. This is playing with fire. We're a very closely divided country here. And if people have to have confidence in the results of the election and the legitimacy of the government and people trying to change the rules to this to this methodology, which, as a matter of logic, is very open to fraud and coercion, is reckless and dangerous. And the people are playing with fire as a matter of logic. Right. He's right. Obviously, this is going to be more fraud with a possibility of fraud. Uh, and the idea that you haven't had widespread fraud. Well, First of all, widespread, it doesn't it doesn't need to be widespread, just any of it. I mean, we've had a presidential election decided by 500 and some odd votes. Uh, Secondly, you know, fraud by definition is supposed to be something that's hidden. You're not supposed to know about it. So if you get away with it, if you're successful at the fraud, no one knows. We did have a congressional uh, race as well, very recently overturned because of fraud. So this is not something that can't happen. I, I, it's not a, a wise idea to uh, just send out ballots to people when they don't even ask for them. Um, do I have time for one more story here? Uh, this one, you might want to have your kids go the other direction, maybe sprint out of the room. Uh, for the Goop team, smelling Gwyneth Paltrow's vagina was just another day at the office. We all live and breathe these products, said the chief designer and head of merchandising. You will find staff sitting at their desk with a bunch of needles in their face or wearing a necklace vibrator while discussing which sex toys gave them the best orgasm that weekend. This sounds like something directly out of hostel. Like that, this is the workplace of the people that run the torture hostel in the movies. Um, for the goop team, smelling Gwyneth, Gwyneth is, Gwyneth's? The vagina became another day at the office. She's the ultimate embodiment of the brand. In the Me Too era, can you force people to smell these things? I, I wonder if that's allowed. I will say, though, they did describe what it smelled like. Geranium, citrus, and cedar. The candles sold out immediately because America is a terrible place. Back in a second. Joining me now is a very smart and funny man. He's the host of the Political Orphanage podcast, as well as alienating the audience. You should definitely check those out. Uh, It is Andrew Heaton back on the blaze. Andrew, how are you, my man? Hello, Stu. Very nice to see you. Very good to see you uh, as well, Andrew. How are you surviving the COVID era? Uh, Well, the first 14 years of it were the hardest. (laughs) Uh, But but I I feel like I've reached an equilibrium where where I'm more or less doing okay at this point. And uh, I I will say, so. we we haven't spoken in a few months, Stu, but I I moved out to L.A. Mm -hmm. in February for the networking. For the networking, Stu. <laughs> and 
I'm, I'm living in a desert with with no parking in in the most expensive rent of my life, and I and it's hard for me to feel terribly clever about that move. Doubly so because I suspect I'm the only person in the United States who's been impacted by COVID. So yeah, really it's pretty much just you. I know they talk about you on yeah. the news quite a bit. They're like, all this stuff is happening to <laughs> Andrew right. and it's terrible. Yeah, they have that Heaton index that they put up next to the Dow <laughs> yeah. Jones. Of, like, how, how's Heaton doing? He's down four points, that kind of thing. Yeah, it makes me feel very embarrassed. It, it does. Have you actually seen a person since arriving in California? Yes. Okay. So I, let me think, I went on a date the mm. day before lockdown. <laughs> Uh, and, and subsequently feel like I have lost the biggest game of musical chairs in all of human history. Uh, so that hasn't happened again. Yeah. Uh, but I will say that my like people have lightened up enough to where I have uh, I have a couple. I have one I have one friend that we've got an alliance where I can come over to his house and play with his dog and watch movies and stuff. Mm-hmm. And I have another friend that I can sit on his porch. So I now like like the, the porch thing's a really big addition. Wow. And I and I had a two month period where I I went back to Oklahoma because there were there are way more the porch Porch index is higher in Oklahoma, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, and the dog index too. So mm-hmm. I, I went back there for a while. Because I mean, really, California is kind of still in full-on lockdown. I mean, Texas has loosened up a bunch of stuff, and there's certainly restrictions, and it's certainly a weird life, but it's much closer to normal than I think it is in California at this point. Yes, California. Well, and California was on fire last week. It was yeah. just like a quarter of the state was like there was smoke everywhere, right. and, and like so, I'm, I'm, there's a good chance I'm going to leave Stu. Like there's a thirty percent chance mm-hmm. I'm going to come live in your basement. Okay, uh, and there's like a forty percent <laughs> chance that I'll I'll go back to the middle to somewhere in Texas or or so, somewhere just because yeah, like California. There's if you love beaches in summer, I get it, but like I, I hate beaches in summer. I'm an autumn guy. I yeah. just want to wear Argyle and walk through the mountains, and so without having much of a, a, a career opportunity going on here. I'm like, mm, figuring out how to back away slowly. <laughs> this is the this is the Andrew Heaton time. It's like, I think where I, I most relate to Andrew Heaton, at least the Andrew Heaton that I think I know, which is every, everybody and everything seems nuts. And I, I want to just kind of pull back from everything. There's there's political ads everywhere. Everyone hates everyone. Uh, every single day is another news event that's going to end the world. Uh, just looking at the the landscape right now, how how are you feeling it? Uh, I, I mean, I, I've made peace with the theory that we're living inside of a a, a sitcom universe. Mm-hmm. Like I've just, I, I think when you when you let go and just assume that. You know, back in the real universe, President Huntsman's up for his second term in office. Uh, it, it's it's a little bit easier to understand what's going on. Yeah, no, I, I very much relate to you on that, on that, Stu, because I, I, I feel like my, my position within the media landscape is like a very pithy hostage negotiator. <laughs> like I'm kind of – I'm constantly trying to like kind of go into a room full of people that want to kill each other with rakes right. and go, hey, guys – uh, you actually, okay, team A wants to accomplish this thing. Team B wants to accomplish this thing. We can actually achieve, you know, 40% of both of these deals at it. it we're, we're about to reach peak anger. I mean, it's going to get worse before November and then maybe we'll burn down some cities and then, you know, come around maybe February, things will go back to normal a little bit. But, uh, yeah, it's definitely crazy right now. Um, uh, I, I, I think that you're going to see people get more and more tribalistic. And I, I think that that's partly because uh, the election's happening and people are just going to become more partisan. But yeah. I, I think also uh, just, uh, you know, uh, as as human beings and, and I'm a human on my mom's side, we <laughs> we tend to uh, we tend to sucker ourselves with with like groupness. So when we get stressed out, we kind of dive into the group and, and seek emotional support by virtue of being a part of it. So I think as 
just the, the media landscape increases as COVID happens, as, as you know, Portland catches fire like a like a, a trick birthday cake candle. Uh, I, I think that you're going to see people more and more like kind of like glom onto whatever their home team is, yeah. which is never fun for me. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. I host a show called The Political Orphanage. I don't really I don't really have like I've kind of got like a hometown, but I left there a long time ago. So, yeah, <laughs> it's still you can still have some pictures when you were a youth and you were there. But that's about it. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I thought about exactly what you're saying when because, you know, I have uh, friends who have lost long term friendships over the past yeah. few months. Uh, people are at each other's throats. I, you know, brothers and sisters are fighting with each other. I thought of this, too, uh, the other day with uh, Jim Gaffigan, who's a comedian. I love Jim Gaffigan. I think he's really funny. Um, and he's always been a guy who's kind of stayed away from politics. Right. And, and at times he said messages that were political. But even when I didn't agree with them, it was very easy to take because he didn't throw it in my face. He was just freaking funny about it. And at times did make me think about those topics. He kind of went on this big rant the other day, famously on Twitter and, and has now kind of turned into full resistance mode. And it's kind of sad. I, I said to my wife, I'm like, you know, we just need to come up with a policy that if someone disagrees with us or whatever, we just have to give them a full out pass until like January or February because people are too yeah. stressed out. It's just too crazy. Is that the right policy? No, I, I like that. I mean, like I, I don't mind him. I don't mind him being in, in resistance mode. I don't mind him being a hashtag resistance. Uh, what I would mind, and I don't know, because I've not watched his his Twitter feed or any of that stuff mm -hmm. is. Uh, I don't think contempt is helpful or healthy. Yeah. I don't think hatred is helpful or healthy. And that's the thing that really worries me about a lot of the political conversations I get into is like, like I'm I don't particularly like my, here's my interpretation of Trump and Biden is I think if we if we have to pick two trains to get on, one of the trains keeps getting lost and one of the trains enjoys hitting cows for fun. And so I like I prefer the train that gets lost over the, the, the homicidal train. So I, I nominally prefer Biden. Uh, I'm not a Trump guy. But that that said, though, like I um, I, I don't think that or I, I find that even though I'm, I'm on the, the Biden side of that, that I get in trouble with a lot of my friends because I don't sufficiently hate the people that like Trump. Yeah. And I don't I don't think that there's any benefit for one thing. I've never converted anybody to my position by hating them. Mm -hmm. I don't think that that I don't like this isn't a war. We can't like you, you can't just crush the other team and then they, they disappear from the annals of history. Like mm -hmm. you, like tomorrow, they're all going to be here. We're all going to be around. We got to figure out how to live together. Uh, so, yeah, I, I don't mind if Gaffigan's going like hardcore Democrat. And that makes sense. But right now, if, if he's going to pick a time to do it, now would be the time. My concern would be um, how he is how he is interpreting the role of people he disagrees with uh, and, and the, the relationships he has. Like like to, to your earlier point, Stu, about how you've had friends or you, you know people that have lost relationships. One of the things that I find very odd about the current time is uh, that a lot of people, I think what, what, what uh, confuses them is that their political position may not have changed since they met somebody, or it might have even moved closer to them. They might have been like, uh, a hard a hard right Republican and now they're a moderate Republican or they might have been like an extreme libertarian and now they're kind of libertarian leaning uh, but but even moving a little bit closer towards uh, some of the other folks um, be, as as people get more worked up the, the the sort of zone of acceptability becomes elastic and it's no longer based mm. off of uh, you know, uh, sort of standardized objective rules. It's based off of what I'm feeling. And my feelings are I'm so worried and I'm so anger filled that I'm going to I'm going to retract and shrink that zone of acceptability. And that I don't like because I, I you know, it's hard to know where you stand, even if even if you haven't altered your position. Yeah. And I think I, I do think that 
You know, look, the, this era of, of politics is certainly more inflamed than any that I can ever remember. And add on to that, you know, glo- global pandemic, kind of a big deal. I do find yeah. people a little more irritable um, after going through months and months and months at home. Uh, and I think that that plays into all of this. I mean, you, I think you see that. Uh, I noticed that in the debate about the quote unquote debate about mail-in voting, where it seemed like every other post would be all mail-in votes are fraudulent. And then on the other mm-hmm. side, all mailboxes are being stolen to steal the election. It didn't feel like either one of those positions was exactly right. I very much should agree with you. That That is I, I covered that on my program last week. And I, I might be unless you covered this, that I that I'll, I'm going to uh, extend this to you as well. I might be the only person that actually researched that within the media scape. <laughs> yeah, because probably were. it was I, I was a ma- like, OK, the mailbox thing. Mm-hmm. Um, first of all. With with the vast majority of mail-in ballots, they they have to send it to your home because you have to be registered in a district. See, it's not like you go to the post office, pick it up, and you mail it. They send it to your house, which mm-hmm. means you have a mailbox. It's the mailbox you live with. And I guess there might be some people that you know live in apartment buildings that don't have a, a mailbox in the apartment building. I think that that's probably pretty minor and pretty rare. But al- already, like it's it's already. If, largely a moot issue. And what, what I started reading, because that whole thing started because Jamie Lee Curtis saw a bunch of uh, a bunch of mailboxes on the back of a flatbed truck. Right. And so went, they're, they're stealing these. And I was like, well, this, like like a very simple, logical way to look at this is, did anybody want to just crunch the numbers on on how many mailboxes are rearranged on, a, on an annual basis and like see when they started doing it? And th- they started, I don't know the numbers, but they started doing it under the under Obama, under his guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I like the, the the more I looked into the the, the mailbox thing. So you're on, on on the one hand, Trump when he gave his tr- Trump, you know, wants to throw gasoline on the fire whenever it becomes a thing. <laughs> he he doesn't come out and say, you know, don't worry, we like we all believe in democracy. He doesn't do that. He goes, the other people are, you know, they're they're trying to steal the election. Uh, I, all of the data that I've seen is that whenever a study is conducted about voter fraud, the study always finds that it is a very, very, very slim, negligible, fractional amount of malfeasance that happens. It might it might influence some small local elections that are very tight, like if you've got a state house representative uh, and like, you know, a hundred vote difference, sure, then sure. possibly that happens. But it, it doesn't happen in national politics. Uh, there, there's no data that indicates that it does. The places that it would affect would be swing states. The swing states, by virtue of being swing states, have both parties scrutinizing and watching each other. So it's just it's really not something that that I'm worried about or that anybody that watches it is worried about. On the flip side of the coin, the the idea that uh, the post office is trying to steal the election, which is a let's be clear on this. This is a conspiracy theory. And I don't know why we're not calling it a conspiracy theory, because Mm -hmm. if you think the postmaster general is trying to form a cabal to secretly steal the 2020 election, that that is literally a conspiracy theory. And you're in the conspiracy theory camp. And the the data just doesn't check out to me. Uh, I uh, the, the, the Postal Service has been losing money for a really long time. It has a massive unfunded liability. The guy that they brought in and, and all of the coverage, it always says uh, the Postmaster General uh, DeJoy, who has no postal experience, as if he's just some bumpkin that, that you know came in from like owning a porn theater or something. His, his company was a logistics company. Like he's been working in logistics yeah. for years. And if I were running the Postal Service, what I would want is somebody from the private sector that knows how that works because – 
he's got actual experience updating and modernizing things. And the, the Postal Service, every time they try and change something, as they just did under the new Postmaster General, Congress comes in and goes, we order you to pretend it's 1987. Continue <laughs> operating as an autonomous business that has to fund itself, but act as though email doesn't exist. And it's mm. going to go under. And, and whenever they try anything, Congress just comes in and kneecaps them. And so, yeah, that that whole thing was a mess. And there was a lot of really lazy media reporting of – I just saw this tweet about, you know, either Democrats are stealing the election or Republicans are stealing the election. I'm not even going to bother reading it. I just I know in my heart that it's true because I hate the other team so much. So I'm going to give a thunderous uh, monologue on it without ever actually researching it. And and that's the thing that really irritated me was like, get your hands dirty. Yeah. I mean, it, it makes sense to look at this. I mean, they, I know they showed some pictures of these, you know, look at all these mailboxes. They're they're uh, they're locked up or they're 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 in this like central you know area behind a fence. And it's like, well, this is how they refurbish them and put them back out. And to your point, we all understand how the mail works. When is the last time you put a, a piece of mail in one of those boxes? That is not generally speaking what people do, even apartment complexes generally have a place to drop it off inside the apartment complex. Usually you use those maybe when you're going, you're leaving work, but it's not going to make that big of a difference. I do, though, I will say, and, you know, I hate to bring you on and, 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 and push you in, in this way. You, you were Here nice enough we to go. come. I, 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 go I have ahead, to do it. Stu. I have to do it. Uh, I, I would be irresponsible if I didn't. It, it, I wonder if how much of this has to do with your uh, vice presidential Whig campaign that you're trying right now to run for the vice presidential nomination yep. of the Whig party. And right. I just wonder if, if how much of this is self-serving. That's that's a very good point. And uh, Stu, I actually completely reversed my prior position. That, <laughs> OK, that this is a, uh, a just just a standard way to try to update the Postal Service. I'm now going hardcore the other direction. It is, in fact, a conspiracy. Mm-hmm. It's just not for the Republicans. It's against the Republicans, ancient nemesis. The Whig Party, <laughs> which I revived in 2020. Uh, I, I've brought back the Whig Party. Uh, we're, we're running this year. However, I have been adamant that we're not running with a presidential candidate because I think you'd have to be crazy to run for president. Mm-hmm. So the top of the ticket is me. I'm only running for vice president. Uh, I'm going to say ballot access has been tricky. Okay. We've been working on that. Okay. But, but, uh, but c- coming in late in the game, it's going to be tough to, to pull off the Electoral College. I still think we could do it, but it's going to be a little bit difficult. Uh, I do think that there's a lot of crypto wigs out there that people don't realize that have just been waiting to get back in the game. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, I, uh, you know, I'll, I'll dutifully serve under whichever president wins, assuming that I win the election. Right. Uh, so I, I'm hoping that'll happen. I'm not exactly sure how that works. I don't think it's how our system works works, but I do like yeah, the I fact- looked into it. There, there's there's something called the 19th Amendment, but they don't really look at that stuff anymore. So I like yeah. if I get it, I like, will at least get a bastard or something or, or maybe I'll like live in the, the uh, Naval Observatory and we'll like do a roommate <laughs> situation with whoever the other person. I, I'm OK being co-vice president. Yeah. For, for a while, what I wanted to happen was before uh, before Biden picked uh, Kamala Harris, I was hoping that he and uh, Jay-Z or no, excuse me, Kanye West would simultaneously pick me as vice presidential oh. candidate and I'd, I'd run on three tickets. Uh, but that hasn't happened. And that my, the, a part, part, of, part, part of my campaign is I am going to focus on rather than trying to get uh, ballot access, because that's going to be harder. I'm going to focus on trying to get endorsements from living vice presidents like Joe Biden. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so you know, he's not running for vice president this time. I think it would be gentlemanly for him to do it. Uh, mm-hmm. If Walter Mondale is alive, I'm going to look into that, see mm-hmm. if maybe I get him on board. 
Uh, we, we're, I think we, we might be able to make this happen. I think Cheney's still around. You could get a few. Uh, I don't know if that one. I don't know if he'd go for you, but we'll, we'll have to see on that one. Um, I Give think me. just some advice for next time you run, maybe less research about the Postal Service and more research on the amendments. <laughs> it's just a recommendation. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and then I, I got to say, kick it off a campaign. I think I kicked it off four months before the general election sure. is late in the game. It's like if I, if I do this mm-hmm. again next time and i think i will i'm either gonna i'm either gonna run it an off year so nobody sees it coming mm-hmm. like i'll run it uh like 2023 or like yeah right. tw- 20 yeah 2023 or i'll really like work it maybe i'll run for like democrat republican and Whig as vice president mm. and just go with whichever party nominates me uh but you know it's, it's all part of the growing experience it is it is <laughs> andrew heaton it's all part of the growing experience uh, andrew heaton host of the political orphanage podcast also alienating in the audience a couple great podcasts for you to subscribe to make sure you go subscribe to those today uh, and uh, check out andrew heaton always a really funny and really smart and a good dude andrew great to see you Thanks. man Back at you, Stu. Good to see you. Thank you for having me on. All right. Back in a second. Vote Whig. Kamala? Nah. Mala. Yes, the Kamala Namala t-shirt is available now at stewdoesmerch.com. We'd appreciate you picking one up. This helps support the show. It keeps us in business. They say, oh, hey, well, at least they're selling some shirts. I mean, the show sucks, but at least some shirts are flying out of the store. So I really appreciate when you do that. Uh, also, uh, Senility Now. Uh, senility, we need to start doing some Senility Now segments because Joe Biden, if you haven't noticed, a tad senile. Uh, senility Now in many different colors. This is a great shirt, actually. Uh, pick it up at studiosmerch.com. Have a great Labor Day weekend, uh, or don't, because I won't be thinking about you. See you then.